Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Uh, I'm Pete, Peter Edelman. We're here joined by Deanna Okanachoff and uh, Steve Murens. Uh, we're very fortunate to have uh, another uh, guest from academia joining us today. Uh, Sean and I were actually uh, classmates at McGill. Uh, Sean Rehag is a, an associate professor uh, at Osgood uh, Law School in Toronto and has done a lot of work in the, in the refugee context uh, in terms of both on the practical side in terms of working at the Parkdale Legal Clinic and, and doing work uh, in terms of supervising students that have been working with uh, uh, working with refugees and immigrants, uh, but has also done a lot of what we're hoping to talk about today is some of the, uh, the very interesting work that Sean's been doing over the past few years uh, in terms of quantitative work with uh, decision-making in the immigration context. And so for those of you uh, who are familiar with Sean's work, every year he publishes tables of decision makers uh, and the, the rates of decision making at the Refugee Protection Division and has done for many years now and those of us who work in, in refugee law uh, definitely uh, make use of those in terms of trying to understand the grant rates for different countries and different members uh, but he's also done more academic work in terms of studying the, uh, um, the decision making um, so both Sean and I ended up in immigration uh, um, maybe I don't know about inspired would be the right word, but uh, uh, partly as a result, I think, we're, did we work at Accidental Refugee together as well? We were at Accidental Refugee Mali together. And so we, we were both at, did, uh, did placement as, placements at, with Accidental Refugee and uh, had the, uh, the rather dubious honor of both having amongst our lowest marks in law school in uh, what was it? 
terrible immigration law class uh, that we took. Uh, unfortunately, we were there before François Crépeau uh, was a professor at McGill, and uh, now they, uh, the students at McGill are very well served with uh, a, a very eminent uh, um, professor in the in the area. Um, we did not have that fortune, uh, and uh, some some of our um, many of our classmates ended up in immigration law. Oddly enough, uh, perhaps as a reaction to what happened there. Yeah, it, uh, it gives me uh, a, a way to tell my students not to worry about their grades. That grades don't matter uh, if you get your your worst grade in the uh, area that you end up uh, specializing in. Yeah, so um, yeah, I think we both done you know we both done things right. in this yeah. area. So welcome, Sean. Thanks. To, thank you for joining us. Um, so maybe we can just start uh, just to talk about some of your quantitative work. Um, do you want to maybe just start out by letting us? How did you get? How did you start doing this? What's because uh, you you started this several years ago, uh, starting to do more quantitative. Uh, um, uh, studies of decision makers in the immigration context. You want to just describe to us how your your research evolved to, to come in to start doing that kind of work? Yeah, it was it was really by accident. Um, so I was doing a, a doctorate at the University of Toronto with uh, Professor Audrey Macklin, and I was looking at uh, church sanctuaries, so people who move into churches to avoid uh, removal uh, from uh, uh, from Canada. Um, and uh, I had spoken with lots of uh, people who were involved in providing sanctuary uh, to um, people facing removal um, and I asked them you know why are you doing this and they told me that they were doing this because there were people who uh, were in fact refugees who were not being recognized as such in the official refugee determination process and were thus at risk of, of removal to face persecution torture or even death and the churches were stepping in to prevent that and one of the um, uh, arguments that they put forward uh, quite frequently was that at the time, um, there was no um, administrative appeal uh, for negative uh, refugee uh, determination. So there was no refugee appeal division uh, in place as there currently is. Um, and so what they said was uh, mistakes were being made at first instance that couldn't be um, adequately corrected uh, in the rest of the, the process. And they identified the source of that mistake as being uh, due to subjectivity in decision making. So what they said essentially uh, was that when people make their refugee claims, whether or not they succeed depends in at least some measure on the luck of the draw, on who happens to decide the case, not based on the facts and the law of the case. So I, I heard them say this over and over and over again. Um, and uh, as part of my, my doctoral work, I wanted to test whether that was in fact the case. Um, are uh, due outcomes in a refugee adjudication, do they hinge on, on who the decision maker is? And so I tried to come up with various methodologies to do that. Um, and one of the methodologies um, that I stumbled upon was doing access to information requests to the Immigration and Refugee Board, basically asking them to provide me with a, 
a data dump, a printout at the time of uh, all of the um, of, of data points for every single decision, um, things like the who the decision maker is, what the outcome is, what the uh, country is, the who the council is, um, and I put that you know I digitized that, I put that into a, a database, and that then allowed me to look at patterns and outcomes and what the data. Uh, showed uh, the data that I was looking at for my dissertation, but also the data that I've uh, uh, put online every year since I think 2006. What it showed was that uh, uh, the sanctuary providers were right, that uh, uh, outcomes do, at least some of the time, appear to hinge on, on who the decision maker is. And just for our listeners, that data is usually posted on the the website for the Canadian Council for Refugees, uh, and maybe we can provide a link uh, um, to that as well, but it gets posted every year uh, yep. there. Um, okay, and so, in, in when you, so when you were looking at this data, and maybe we can talk, why don't we start by talking about the Refugee Protection Division. Um, in terms of the broad data, what, what were some of the patterns that, or some of the things that you were finding in your studies of those, uh, of that data that's over the years? Yeah, so, um, I mean, the main thing that jumps out at you when you look at the data is that uh, different decision makers grant refugee protection at various at very different rates, and so um, for a while uh, there were decision makers who were granting every single um, a case that they heard, and at the same time there were other decision makers who were deciding hundreds of cases and they were denying every single case um, that uh, they'd uh, heard. Um, there might be you know some explanation for those differences, so. If decision makers um, specialize in particular types of cases, so if a decision maker is hearing lots of cases from one particular part of the world uh, and another decision maker is hearing cases from a different part of the world, depending on the conditions in the regions of the country, uh, regions of the world that they're specializing in, understandably there would be um, variations uh, in grant rates across those two uh, decision makers. And so um, uh, one of the things that I did quite early on uh, was that I started calculating um, predicted uh, grant rates uh, based on country of origin. So you do basically a weighted average, you figure out what um, the uh, decision maker's grant rate would be uh, if they were deciding cases in exactly the same way, uh, with if they were granting refugee protection with the same frequency in cases from the same countries as their colleagues, and then you can compare um, what the kind of expected uh, grant rate uh, is against what their actual grant rate is. And one of the things that's really, um, that really jumps out at you uh, in the data uh, is that uh, there are some decision makers who are much more likely to grant refugee protection than would be expected based on country of origin. And there are others who are much less likely to grant refugee protection than would be expected uh, based on those same calculations. So I think that was the, the, the main um, pattern uh, that I noticed. Um, as time went on uh, and I continued to put together uh, this data, I started looking at other um, factors. So uh, one of the factors that I've uh, looked at is um, counsel. Um, doesn't matter 
whether or not you have a lawyer. Uh, it doesn't matter whether your counsel is a lawyer versus an immigration uh, consultant. Even if you have a lawyer, it doesn't matter which lawyer you have. Um, and so, um, uh, so I've looked at all of those kinds of uh, questions uh, in some of the uh, in some of the research that I've published. And what were the in terms of the those those factors? What what did your research find with respect to counsel and and uh, and those factors that you just set out? Yeah. So one of the the things about my research uh, is um, that um, it uh, tends uh, just to confirm what everyone already anecdotally knows. And so, of course, everyone already knew that uh, outcomes in the refugee determination process depended um, at least a little bit on which decision maker you had, and the data confirmed that. In the same way, everyone already knew that having a lawyer mattered, because if they didn't know that, why would you even, why would you get a lawyer, right? Um, so presumably, um, people think that having a lawyer uh, uh, matters, and the data showed that that um, that that view was was correct. That people were more likely to succeed with their uh, refugee uh, claims uh, if they had a lawyer, and they were more likely to succeed with their refugee claims if they had a lawyer. Not only vis-a-vis -vis those who didn't have any representation, but also uh, compared to those who had um, representation by uh, by immigration uh, consultants. So the data showed that quite clearly. Um, some more recent research that I um, that I did. Um, showed uh, that um, even when you have a lawyer, it matters who your lawyer is. So I looked at a, a subset of uh, claimants, uh, Hungarian Roma uh, refugee claimants. It was a very large group of, um, of refugee claimants um, from about 2008 to 2012. Um, and uh, there were you know, several lawyers uh, who had very, very low um, uh, success rates. Uh, and you were actually better off not having a lawyer than having those particular uh, lawyers. Uh, those lawyers have since been uh, found to have committed uh, professional uh, misconduct by uh, the Law Society uh, of uh, Ontario. So again, none of this is surprising. We know that quality of counsel will vary across um, uh, lawyers, um, but the numbers help to back that up. One of the things we learned in a previous episode um, from uh, Molly was that where you are detained matters with regards to whether there's a risk of long-term detention or uh, and that different cultures among CBSA and the board, I guess, vary. Did your data look at whether a claim is more likely to be successful depending on whether it's filed in BC, Ontario, Quebec? Uh, I haven't looked specifically uh, at that. The data would allow you to um, uh, the data would allow you to break that down um, uh, a little bit. Uh, I've looked at that uh, kind of question um, in other contexts, though. So um, I looked at that question in the context of um, I've done similar kinds of research at the federal court. Uh, level um, and um, when I looked at uh, uh, the likelihood of being successful in a judicial review of a negative refugee a determination there were some regional 
uh, differences. Um, one of the challenges with doing this kind of uh, research is that um, quantitative research of this kind can establish uh, correlations. It can say that there's you know, a difference in grant rates depending on who your decision maker is or who your lawyer is or what region of, of the country you're in, um, but it uh, can't uh, easily anyway establish causation. So one of the challenges when you're looking at um, different uh, patterns and outcomes across regions is well, is that because of the decision makers? Is it because of the culture in the office? Is it because of particular kind of regional policies? Is it because of uh, legal aid practices? Is it because of the the bar? Is it because uh, different regions are attracting different groups of claimants? So even if you've got um, claimants from the same country, maybe a particular type of claimant is going to uh, one part of Canada and a different type of claimant from that same country is going to another. So breaking down, uh, trying to control for all those factors can be a uh, can be a challenge. And what about, I can't remember which year the RPD went from being, uh, I think it was government and council appointments to part of the civil service. Has that made a difference? So again, causation here is a oh, challenge. Yeah. There's definitely the... the the uh, success rates in refugee claims are are significantly higher under the new system that came into place in late 2012 um, compared uh, to the uh, old system. Um, but figuring out why is a challenge. I think that the quality of the decision making, the quality of the decision makers, the quality of the of the training um, that's been uh, provided, um, I think uh, moving to civil servant decision decision makers has uh, helped. Um, I don't know that the the, the evidence that I would. Uh, look to uh, look to for that is not necessarily the grant rates because how do you know what the appropriate grant rate is? But when I uh, I do read large numbers of of decisions um, and the decisions are 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 better crafted than they were uh, in the past on the whole. Um, there's certainly always exceptions, um, but um, uh, the quality of the the, the written decisions I think uh, has. Um, has uh, increased, um, and when I look at who's on the the board uh, right now at the Refugee Protection Division, the the Refugee Appeal Division, but also in other places, uh, the Immigration uh, Division, uh, for example, um, uh, I think I think there's been a, a real increase in in the quality of the uh, of the folks who are, are making these uh, these decisions. I'm interested in some. Um, some feedback on what what the response has been to some of these uh, studies that you've done. Yeah, so um, I have given presentations to um, uh, about this research uh, in various relevant uh, institutions, but it's almost always with the understanding um, that um, these are kind of closed uh, meetings uh, and that uh, uh, nothing uh, that's said in them can be uh, repeated uh, outside. So I'm a bit limited in terms of what I can say. Um, but I can say that um, uh, people involved uh, at administrative levels in all the institutions that I've worked with have been very interested um, in uh, in the research, um, and that I have had uh, conversations with decision makers at various levels 
um, outside of those closed meetings uh, where people have uh, talked about how seeing um, the kind of data that I put together led them to reflect on their own um, decision-making um, practices. Uh, I am aware that there are people who are of the view that the um, that the data uh, is um, not necessarily helpful. So um, uh, you can imagine that's, that many decision makers who are identified as outliers might think that there are reasons why they are outliers, that the data doesn't take, that the methodology doesn't take into consideration. Um, uh, Factors like uh, caseload, uh, for example. Um, factors like um, uh, are cases being randomly assigned to um, decision makers, or are decision makers being given, you know, you're someone who can do a large number of fairly simple uh, cases, and those cases are going to tend to go positive, and that's why your rate is so high. So um, often the decision makers say. Um, that uh, they'd like to see uh, a more complex methodology. Certainly, uh, when I went and gave the presentation the first time, um, so the refugee law bar tends to really like my research. Mm -hmm. um, they like the, 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 the numbers. Um, uh, the response to my research about uh, council, uh, though, was a little bit less uh, enthusiastic, particularly when I was at a conference uh, or a workshop, I guess, uh, with lots of refugee lawyers in the room, and I put up a chart, and, there, and I named the names of, of, of refugee lawyers, and I put up the, the success rates and the predicted success rates based on country of origin, and uh, immediately the hands go up, and you're like, hang on now. <laughs> my rate, my, 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 my expected rate, uh, should have been uh, a bit lower there because of this factor here or that factor there. So, um, uh, so yeah, I think I think it would be fair to say that the response to the research has been uh, mixed, but that at an administrative level, um, I know they're paying attention to it. Mm -hmm. The person who said that it wasn't taking caseload into account, what is the is the suggestion that a lighter caseload would lead to more refusals? No, I think it's. I think it's about. Um, I think it's more about uh, not so much the overall number of cases that you're doing, but the nature of the cases that you're doing. So, the typically the argument is cases are not randomly assigned. That people specialize in ways that are not visible, um, that are not kind of written down uh, anywhere, but that. Um, uh, but that there's some discretion exercised in how cases are allocated, including including in ways that would relate to caseload. So, like I said, if um, someone is viewed as imagine that someone is viewed as being really good with a very challenging uh, cases involving, I don't know, gender-based violence, and they get a larger number of those kinds of cases that might have an impact on, um, on uh, the frequency with which those cases are, are well-founded that would not be reflected in the very simple country of origin metric that, uh, that, that I use. So it's more about the, the nature of the caseload. 
Now, you actually looked at, uh, and you may have done this with others as well, but I know that with one or two decision makers, one one particularly notorious one, uh, who, if I recall correctly, had a zero, uh, zero grant rate over several years, if I'm not mistaken, and didn't grant a single refugee claim. Um, and you actually looked at his uh, decisions in a lot more detail. Um, do you want to just maybe talk about that? Uh, yeah. So that was a, a decision maker who had denied um, every claim that he had heard, you know, several hundred uh, over a period of, of three years. And I wanted to understand why. Part of the reason why is because the decision maker was hearing mostly cases from countries with relatively uh, low uh, grant rates. Um, so that partially explained the um, the uh, his low grant rate. Uh, nonetheless, uh, I was able to show kind of statistically that um, uh, that even when you take into consideration the countries that that this decision maker was deciding cases from, um, there uh, there was no way, or it was a one in trillion. Uh, one in a trillion chance that uh, he could be uh, deciding cases exactly the same ways as his colleagues and get to 300 zeros uh, in in a row uh, just based on random um, uh, random assignment of cases. Uh, and so I knew that he that that he was uh, deciding cases differently than his colleagues, and I wanted to understand why. Um, that's methodologically challenging because most refugee protection division decisions are not published. So uh, I use the same methodology that I use um, to get the actual uh, data from the Immigration and Refugee Board. I did a, an access to information request to get redacted copies of all of his decisions during this period where he was denying um, all of the, the cases. Um, and um, the thing that was striking um, in the when I, when I actually looked at the cases was the reason that he was, well, there were a couple things that were striking. One was um, that uh, out of all of the cases, and I had a couple hundred, um, there was only one case where he said that he believed the claimant, that he thought that the claimant was telling the truth. Because you can deny a refugee claim based on any number of grounds. A claimant might be telling the truth, but uh, perhaps there's state protection available in their country, or perhaps there's an internal flight alternative, or there might perhaps the harms that they fear don't fit within the refugee definition. So you could believe the claimant and still uh, deny uh, the claim. Uh, for uh, this particular decision maker, um, he uh, seldom believed uh, the claimant. And in fact, only in one case did he say, I believe the claimant. In that case, he was not deciding the case alone. He was sitting on a panel um, with uh, two uh, other uh, decision makers. Uh, in um, the bulk of the remaining cases, he said, uh, I simply do not believe uh, anything that the claimant is telling me. Uh, and so I wrote an article entitled, I simply do not believe, uh, setting out the findings of this, uh, this research. So he said, I simply do not believe in, in the majority of, of cases. Um, in uh, a number of cases, uh, he uh, said, um, I'm going to deny this claim on this specific kind of legal ground, but nonetheless, don't take that to mean that I believe the claimant. I'm not saying explicitly, I'm not saying I believe the claimant. And then in a, a number of other cases, he simply said nothing at all 
about uh, whether he uh, believed or disbelieved the claimant. And so what was striking when you sit down and you read um, decision after decision after decision um, is uh, that um, uh, not only is this decision maker denying claims more frequently than his colleagues, uh, but he's doing so because he thinks claimants are lying. Um, and he thinks claimants are lying more frequently than his colleagues think claimants are lying. And so that led me to think about um, questions um, like uh, when someone makes a credibility uh, assessment, what are they what are they actually doing? So um, one way of thinking about a credibility assessment is that there is there's this kind of truth that's out there in the world, and your job is to assess uh, whether what the claimant is telling you meets that uh, truth. And so everything is about what the claimant is saying, um, are, is what they're saying plausible, is what they're saying internally uh, consistent. Uh, so that, 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 that imagines that the exercise of credibility judgment is about the evidence, is about the claimant. Um, but another way of thinking about uh, credibility uh, assessment uh, places a much greater role on uh, the decision maker, on not uh, is the claimant telling the truth, but do I believe the claimant? Um, and that uh, question, as soon as you start thinking about, okay, well, if the uh, if I know that this particular decision maker is more likely or less likely to believe a claimant than that decision maker, then I know that it's not because of what the claimant is saying, it's not because of the evidence that explains the difference in outcome. What explains the difference in outcome is something about the role of the uh, decision maker. And so I've been spending a lot of time lately thinking about um, what is the role of the decision maker uh, in uh, making uh, credibility um, and making credibility assessments. And specifically, if I was a decision maker, how would I try to approach the question of whether or not someone is telling um, uh, the uh, the truth? I mean, the conclusion that, that I've come to is that I think as a decision maker, uh, I would want to think very carefully about my own role and I would want to make my own role explicit in my uh, decision-making. I would want to make my uncertainties explicit in my decision-making. I would want to facilitate review of my decision-making because I would be worried that my decision-making um, might be uh, might be limited uh, by my own uh, uh, perspective. And, and so I would do things like say, um, well, you know, uh, I, 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 I I've heard you say X. I don't think this is plausible because here's my worldview that says this is not uh, that this is not uh, plausible. Rather than simply asserting this is not plausible. Same thing with um, there's a contradiction in the evidence. Okay, there will always be contradictions in the evidence, but here's why I think this contradiction in the evidence leads me personally as a decision maker to believe or not believe you and to tie it a little bit more uh, into, um, into my own kind of subjective decision-making process, partly to try to explain to decision make to the, the person involved why I got to the decision that I got to, um, but also partly to facilitate review. And so, um, 
I guess you just to, I think this credibility issue is maybe a good uh, launching point for some of the more recent work you've done with Hillary uh, Cameron Evans Evans Cameron Evans Cameron Um, so Hillary's recently published a book on credibility and hopefully at some point we'll have uh, Hillary if you're out there listening give us a call uh, uh, next time you're in Vancouver we can uh, we can hopefully have a discussion about credibility but she's she's done quite a bit of work on credibility and you've recently done another a, a new study uh, looking at this issue of decision makers and credibility. Um, do you want to maybe describe what it is that you and, and yeah. Hillary have been doing in this, what I understand is a forthcoming stuff that is, is under review, out. so hopefully it will be published. Uh, yeah, so um, this is a, a, a project uh, that Hillary and I have been working on that um, tries to think about um, the connection or disjunction between um, reason writing on the one hand and decision making on the other hand in the refugee credibility context. And so um, what we uh, did is we had, um, uh, we decided to use an experimental uh, methodology. We wanted to get, wanted to understand a bit more about credibility decision, uh, credibility decision making in refugee adjudication. Um, and we thought that we, we wanted to go beyond standard kind of legal methodologies where you would look at the written reasons offered for a decision because uh, we uh, were curious about whether there was something, uh, whether the written reasons that decision makers provide are transparent. That is when someone says, I don't believe you're um, telling me the truth because there's a contradiction in the evidence. Uh, That's the the legal rationale that you're offering is there's a contradiction in the evidence. Um, but is that actually what's driving the outcome or is there something else driving the outcome and you're just reaching for a legal rationale? So we wanted to study that um, and we thought the best way to do that was use, to use an experimental methodology. So the experimental methodology that we used um, was to have um, law students uh, serve as simulated refugee adjudicators in controlled circumstances where we could vary some elements of the uh, uh, case files that they looked at um, in order to uh, see a, how did those variations affect decision writing, and B, how did those variations affect um, decision making? So, one of the um, the, the students did uh, worked on two uh, case files. Uh, one case file was a sexual orientation um, based uh, refugee claim. Um, in that case file, the claimant had established that gay men in his country faced persecution, and the only issue. Um, uh, was uh, whether he was in fact gay. Uh, In the case file, there was um, evidence that would have allowed a decision maker to go uh, either way. There were some contradictions in the evidence, some um, uh, indications of fraud uh, in the evidence, but there was also evidence that substantiated uh, his assertions about his, uh, the claimant's assertions about his sexual orientation. So all the students uh, saw the same substantive portion of uh, the case file um, and then uh, the students were divided up into uh, randomly divided up into groups uh, one group saw in addition to the substantive substantive parts of the case file saw a picture an image of a, a claimant who whose uh, physical presentation tracked on to various stereotypes associated uh, with gay men uh, 
another third of the students saw um, a picture of a claimant whose presentation tracked on to stereotypes about uh, straight men and, and the remaining third of the students were um, uh, uh, were our control group and they didn't see any image. Um, we incentivized the students to prepare they they, they were asked uh, you know, do you believe the claimant as the claimant established on a balance of probabilities that uh, he is in fact a gay man um, and the students had to write reasons uh, to justify their uh, factual uh, finding and we incentivized them, we gave them um, $20 if they uh, wrote reasons that complied with kind of basic principles of administrative law that we provided uh, to them. Um, so that was one uh, case, and there was a similar. Um, there was another uh, case file that the students looked at um, that involved gender-based violence. Um, in that case file, uh, the uh, again the issue was credibility: is the claimant telling the truth? Um, in that case file, the all the, stu- the students saw the exact same testimony. Um, so some a third of the students saw a testimony in the form of a transcript. A third of the students. Saw testimony with a claimant who was exhibiting stereotypical markers of dishonesty, uh, fidgeting, gaze aversion, uh, things like that. Uh, And a third of the students saw um, a a video of testimony where the the claimant was displaying stereotypical markers of truth-telling, you know, looking at the camera directly, uh, uh, not fidgeting, not pausing when they're uh, speaking. And so, uh, again, students have to make a credibility assessment, have to uh, uh, provide uh, written reasons uh, justifying uh, their uh, their decision. Um, and so then uh, we were able to, um, to look at kind of patterns in the uh, decision-making. We were able to see, for example, uh, that which picture uh, the students saw in the sexual orientation file affected um, the, their likelihood of believing the claimant was in fact uh, gay. And so uh, we could, uh, we, we now have kind of experimental proof that um, uh, at least law students, when they're engaged in simulated refugee adjudication involving sexual orientation, rely on some form of, of gaydar. And that's a, a problem um, because you know, the case law and guidelines say that you should not rely on stereotypes about what sexual minorities look like in deciding whether or not someone is, in fact, a, a member of a, of a sexual minority. When you're setting up a study like that, how do you explain it to the students kind of what the purpose of Because I feel like if it was me, I would have thought, well, I see what they're trying to do here. Um, but how is it explained to prevent people from trying to anticipate yeah. what is being examined? So um, the, the, we told the students that we were doing, honestly, we told, uh, we told the students that we were doing a study on uh, credibility, that uh, we were interested in um, how they made uh, credibility uh, uh, how they made credibility assessments. Some students might have um, recognized that oh, there's a picture here, and I should uh, I should think about my my own responses to this image, uh, and that's the trick that 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 uh, that's kind of at play in in this uh, study. Um, but uh, I think the data suggests that they 
they didn't catch on that that was the game in the sense that the decisions ended up tracking on to uh, the uh, tracking on to stereotypes about um, uh, about uh, about sexual minorities. So the person, the student with the picture, had no sense of what the other students. That's right. They wouldn't. They wouldn't. They wouldn't have known what other people were uh, were seeing. And in fact, uh, after we conducted the study, it appeared that a number of students didn't realize that it was in fact a simulated refugee claim because several of them asked us, "Well, what happened with this particular person, like in real life?" Um, uh, so I'm not sure that they fully got that it was was a, was a simulation. But for us, the most interesting finding was not so much the that the students' um, decision making was influenced by stereotypes about what sexual minorities looked like. We fully expected that. The more interesting finding was that that was entirely not transparent in the written reasons. So when students were explaining why don't they believe the claimant they didn't say well claimant you know looks straight to me they said there's a contradiction in the evidence there's um uh, there's evidence of uh, of fraud there's delay in making your refugee claim there's the fact that you weren't fully forthcoming when you told your story to uh, an immigration officer the first time uh, around um, and when people did believe the claimant it wasn't well he looks gay to me it was uh, the claimant offered a reasonable explanation for the contradiction. The claimant offered a reasonable explanation for the delay. The claimant. So what that suggests um, to uh, to me uh, is that uh, there is a disjunction between factors that influence decision making and the legal rationale that's offered uh, for a decision, and that raises. Um, interesting questions at a kind of advocacy or policy level. So, for example, if you want to improve sexual minority refugee decision making, is it sufficient to issue guidelines saying don't refer to what a person looks like in your written reasons? Um, is, is, is that just going to drive the uh, decision-making uh, that's based on that uh, underground, that people are going to reach for other reasons. And in fact, you know, maybe you're better off not telling people that because at, at least uh, if you, uh, at least if they are honest that they're draw, drawing on some kind of KDAR that's visible in the decision and you can you can appeal it, you'd, ra- you'd rather have them say that than have them not um, say it but still uh, rely on it. So that it has some implications, I think, for... Um, um, uh, for policy and advocacy, but it also has some, it raises some very challenging questions about, um, for, for decision makers, about what they ought to be doing when they write reasons. Is their job, your job as a decision maker, is it to write legally valid, to write a legally valid rationale for a particular outcome? Is that your job? In other words, if you're regularly making decisions and those decisions are being upheld by the Refugee Appeal Division or the federal court, are you doing? Does that is that the signal that you're doing a good job, or is your job to try to be transparent, to try to make your uncertainties visible, to try to make your biases visible? In which case, 
your decisions are more easily going to be subject to um, uh, a review. You're going to have more um, successful appeals at the Refugee Appeal Division. You're going to have more successful um, judicial uh, reviews. And then you would see, I'm doing my job right if I'm helping uh, refugee claimants uh, appeal my decisions when I make mistakes. And so that's a, two very different approaches to what your job is um, as uh, as a, a, a decision maker. And that's kind of the direction that I'm um, going in, uh, that I want to explore a little bit more using more simulations. I think also when you're talking about providing very clear parameters, one part of um, you know, in terms of this question of credibility, one of the hallmarks of a credibility problem is always contradictions. Um, but I, you know, this is always jarring for people that are working in the um, in the anti-violence sector or working with people that have experienced trauma, because trauma and contradictions um, go hand in hand uh, or omissions or, you know, um, if you have a broken narrative, often when you're working with someone with trauma, um, to me, that's a mark of authenticity as opposed to a mark of, of lacking credibility. Um, and even when it comes in terms of the look in the in the eye, when you're getting um, when you're getting a Bach narrative, and you can see that the person can't quite pull together the, the story, um, uh, you know, that's when as a as an advocate, I'm like, okay, I think we need to take a break because you know you're really onto something because um, that often speaks to a much deeper um, level of truth. Um, so I think often, as you're saying, that when you try codifying these into to like, well, you know, these are the things that administrative decision makers should look for. This is a; th these are the hallmarks of credibility issues um, that I think. Yes, it provides a nice, clean formula, but I think often they they take you right off the mark. I think it needs to be more nuanced and more just like calling out what are the signals and just leaving it there for. Yeah. So I mean, all of the grounds uh, in Canadian administrative law that allow you to make negative credibility inferences are based on um, are based on assumptions that are at the very least problematic if just not flat out wrong. Mm. Um, they're so, certainly um, not. They're not consistent with trauma theory at all. So, um, so they're they're definitely not trauma informed in any way. They don't pay attention to, to to the impact that trauma has on on memory, on narrative, on demeanor, on on that. But even even if you get outside of the context of trauma, there is no necessary correlation between the consistency. Uh, in a, uh, a narrative, and um, it's uh, it, it, and whether that narrative is true, you can have an entirely internally consistent false narrative, and you can have an entirely inconsistent uh, true uh, uh, narrative. And all the research on on truth telling done by you know criminologists and sociologists says exactly that. The research on demeanor says that humans are. Terrible. We're terrible at judging, mm -hmm. at going from 
perceptions of demeanor to inferences about sure. uh, about uh, truth telling and the research on plausibility says that plausibility is essentially uh, based on comparing um, what uh, comparing a, an experience of someone who's telling you a story with your own understanding of, of, of what's likely to happen or not likely to happen which is clearly culturally for sure culturally well this based. is what sort of blew the side of my head off was when you were talking about the perspective of the decision maker is then you're actually complicating it by adding yet another person's narrative too and so um, the reason that someone might not find something believable is based on their own personal narrative which then you know seeing how those two might not mesh is something entirely outside of the whole adjudicative process in a way but certainly impacting on it 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 can be uh, but I don't think it needs to be Um, I think it's there regardless so when the outlier decision maker that we were talking about before says, I simply do not believe. Um, he, uh, he thinks that he's saying the claimant is not telling the truth. But what he's actually saying is he's the kind of person that doesn't believe people mm-hmm. or that doesn't believe you know, refugee uh, claimants. And what I would like to see, at a minimum, if for decision makers who are uncomfortable um, with making their own kind of subjective reactions visible in their decisions, at a minimum, I want those decision makers to be reflective uh, in their own time about uh, what's affecting uh, their um, uh, their decision making, about why there's someone who simply believes or simply does not believe claimants, or why they are why they find a particular per, a particular contradiction indicative of um, uh, of um, fraud and another contradiction completely you know explainable. I want I think I think that kind of reflection is the minimum that we should be expecting from decision makers um, in contexts where, you know, key rights are at play um, and in contexts where credibility is mm-hmm. often the central issue. I think Audrey Macklin, who um, is a, a professor at the University of Toronto, uh, herself was an immigration and, and refugee board member, um, and she's written a, a really great piece where she talks about her experience um, uh, on on the board, and the conclusion that she came to was that the kind of stuff that she thought that she was going to be doing on the board, uh, making kind of legal decisions with the nature of persecution and the availability of state protection and all that stuff um, that uh, that you learn about in a uh, in in a law class about uh, refugee law, um, that that was that was a very small part of what she ended up doing on the board. The bulk of what she did was determining whether people were telling the the truth. And she learned some things about herself um, in that uh, process. Uh, And she talked in, in the piece, she talks in particular about the value of being confronted with other people looking at the exact same evidence coming to a different conclusion. So when she was on the board, there were two board members deciding each case, and you only had to persuade one of them that you met the refugee definition in order to obtain uh, refugee protection. And that meant that decision makers were regularly hearing the exact same evidence and then having to talk to one another about do they believe or not believe the claimant. And that that then, if you're talking to someone who's a colleague who you respect, who you think is you know, approaching their job with care, 
about coming to a different conclusion that you're coming to, you're you're confronted with the reality that it's not the it's not the evidence, it's not the facts, it's it's the decision maker. And at a minimum, if that's the case, you want to be thoughtful about those those differences. So it's interesting that you say, I mean, that's one of the, as a criminal lawyer, that we have the significant difference in terms of the experience of being in front of a judge alone versus a 12-person jury. And most criminal lawyers will tell you that when a jury goes back and deliberates, and if 12 people come back and say, I believe this person beyond a reasonable doubt, they're usually getting it right. And they're the indications of the studies that I've seen on juries is that what you end up having in a jury in many cases is a number of different ways of assessing truth. So some people are very psychological, some people are very intuitive, some people are very uh, factual and will be all about this contradiction and that contradiction. You always have these two, there's always two or three in a jury of note-takers, just voracious note-takers. They're, they're not looking at the witness, they're, they're taking notes. And I, I guess I'm wondering in terms of the study where the direction you're going in, if, if you're going to put all of your biases into your decision-making, there's some of my biases I'm conscious of. And there are many of my biases that I'm now conscious of that I was unconscious of for many years. And I have no doubt that I have biases now that I will become conscious of in the future and some that I may never become conscious of. And I guess the, I'm wondering from your perspective, are, is my unconscious bias not more dangerous in some ways than the, con- the stuff that I could actually say, you know, I, I have these biases or uh, I, I note that the claimant is behaving in this way and this may have influenced my decision making and that I set that out in my, in my decision. Um, I, I'm just wondering how we would go about even seeing that, even if I wanted to be transparent as a decision maker, how would I go about doing that? I, um, I, and to piggyback onto that question, with the study that you did, did you have the opportunity to talk to the students to learn when you said that they, there was a clear correlation between what photo they got and how they, the person was credible as to whether they were consciously just not writing, I don't believe this person's gay because he doesn't look gay, or it was whether it was something just even unconscious. Yeah, so the methodology that we used didn't allow us to... Uh, we, we didn't know whether... Um, this was a product of unconscious uh, bias or whether the, um, the students were thinking, you know, this guy clearly looks gay to me, um, but I know I can't say that and therefore uh, I'm going to reach for some other uh, rationale. So my guess is that there's probably a bit of uh, both uh, going on. Uh, it would be interesting to use you know, a methodology where you go back and then you talk to them afterwards and you interview them, although to be careful about you know how um, how reliable uh, people are in, in, in mm-hmm. assessing their own um, thought process uh, so you'd have to come up with some clever methodology to try mm-hmm. to address that um, but I think it's I think it's true that um, uh, that despite our best efforts um, 
there will always be factors that we don't understand that are affecting our uh, decision making. Um, I think I think there are there are two things that I would I would say about that. The, the first is that. Um, uh, just because uh, you can't uh, be perfect in trying to make your subjectivity uh, visible doesn't mean that you shouldn't do what you can to make the subjectivity that you're aware of uh, visible. So I think I think there's value in trying to articulate, um, uh, trying to put yourself a bit more into the decisions, even if that's only ever going to be partial. Um, but the second thing that I would say is that there are ways of trying to um, push, uh, trying to challenge um, uh, our own kind of limited uh, subjectivity. It doesn't get us to a, you know, some kind of magical point of objectivity, but it does allow us to gain, gain greater insight into some factors that are affecting our uh, decision making and so there you know anti-oppression training is all about that kind of thing um, uh, having going through training um, related to kind of implicit uh, uh, bias implicit association tests are another way of uh, of, uh, of of getting there being reflective so to sit down and, and say well what is it that led me to react to this claimant that way? What, what do I think is influencing my decision making can help lead you to greater insight into your own subjectivity. Conversations with colleagues, um, especially conversations with colleagues where you're looking at the same evidence and you're confronted with the reality of, oh, I thought this was a really easy, clear case in this one direction. My colleague actually went in a different direction. What's going on there? Trying to, uh, trying to, 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 trying to do that work, I think, is is a key part of being a self-reflective, um, thoughtful uh, decision maker. And I would like to see um, the Immigration and Refugee Board spend um, more time on those kinds of questions um, and less time on the questions that I see as being much easier, the kind of the legal tests and the, the refugee definition. I'm confident that that stuff can be addressed through, if you make mistakes with the legal refugee definition, that you can get, that will be caught, the Refugee Appeal Division or the, the, the federal court. Um, the harder stuff uh, is uh, why do I believe someone or not? Mm-hmm. That's this is your one thing. opportunity to have the exactly. person in front of you do it right here. Yeah. Exactly. And, and that's the part that the federal court will generally not, or and the Refugee Appeal Division will generally not uh, interfere with. Um, for the most part, they're very deferential to credibility findings, mm-hmm. and the appellate courts as well. Is that we see that in the in the trial, like with respect to trial courts, mm-hmm. whether it's the provincial courts or the. Uh, disappear, but we see a great level of deference to, to findings of fact or credibility. Mm-hmm. All the more reason it needs to be done properly at the first instance, because it really, I mean, they don't have that material before them if it goes up the chain. 
It does need to be done properly at first instance. I think that's one of the things that Canada's refugee determination system, you know, I've criticized it in many ways, but uh, compared to many other systems in the world, we do put far more resources into the first instance decision, and that does improve decision making. I think we could do more of it, um, uh, but I think that's important. That having been said, I do also think that the research that, that I've done, um, the quantitative research about differences in grant rates, the uh, research looking at uh, kind of the whole body of decision making by a particular uh, decision maker, the experimental methods that I've um, that I've used more recently, I think what it all shows is that there's a level of subjectivity in decision in in refugee adjudication, probably legal decision making in general, but certainly in refugee adjudication, and I think that does have implications for um, institutional design. Uh, one of the one of the implications I think is that because um, refugee adjudication is so subjective and specifically because credibility assessment is so subjective because of the important rights that are at play and because credibility is almost always at stake, uh, I think there are implications for uh, how, um, in particular, the Refugee Appeal Division should approach, first instance, credibility uh, decision-making. I do think that it is appropriate um, for the Refugee Appeal Division to be deferential to findings that a claimant is credible, but I think they should not be deferential to findings that a claimant is not credible. I think they should ask the the first instance decision makers to explain not just to enumerate a list of contradictions, mm -hmm. but to explain why. Okay, you've got those contradictions, now why? Why do you go from those contradictions to an inference that the claimant is not mm -hmm. credible when I have, I've seen 10 other cases where those exact same contradictions are in place and um, the decision maker says that they were reasonably uh, explained. So, so I think part of the problem, part of the reason why appellate courts, um, the Refugee Appeal Division, uh, the federal court, why they're deferential to first instance fact finding is not just because the first instance decision maker has direct access to the person providing the evidence, can ask questions. That, that's a good reason to be deferential. But I think the main reason that the uh, courts and the, the RAD are deferential on review is because the first instance people haven't done a good job of fully setting out their, their thinking. And so if the decision maker doesn't tell you why they believe the person or don't believe the person, then what's the reviewing body? How are they supposed to decide whether that was done well? Why do you know they should show deference to when, if the goal is to have more consistent yeah. decision making, why show deference then to when they do find that they're credible? So I think the reason for, uh, so I would like to see more asymmetric um, processes in the refugee determination um, system. Um, and the reason I would like to see asymmetry, uh, that is you don't treat uh, a, a finding that a person is credible in the same way that you treat a finding that a person is not credible on review. The reason for that is because uh, in all legal systems, uh, you are going to make mistakes. Uh, all legal processes are going to are going to make mistakes and we have to decide what kind of mistake we want to 
uh, we want to uh, avoid. Um, and uh, Hillary Evans Cameron has written a, a great book that explains why in the refugee law context, because of the stakes involved, there ought to be a preference for um, false positive uh, decisions um, uh, uh, and that we ought to be avoiding false negative decisions. In other words, we the thing that we are, should be most concerned about is someone who in fact meets the refugee definition but who's not recognized as such. And this is not a radical kind of claim. We do this in other legal processes all the time. Criminal law is the, the, the best example that in theory, in practice, <laughs> I don't know whether this really plays out, but in theory we, 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 we create all kinds of processes that um, aim to protect against uh, false uh, convictions, even if we know mm -hmm. that the result is that people who have, uh, some people have committed crimes will not be, um, will not be held responsible uh, for uh, that. And that's a trade-off that we, that we live with. And I think in the refugee context, because we're talking about if we get the, if, if we make a, a false negative decision, we're going to be deporting a person to a place where they're going to be persecuted, tortured, or killed. I, I think I think that's that that's the reason why there should be this kind of asymmetry. Mm. All right. Well, it's been definitely educational. Uh, I think for and fascinating. Uh, we look forward to uh, a lot more of your work. Uh, coming in, in future years. Uh, so thanks so much for joining us. Uh, it's been it's been great. And uh, we look forward to you know, seeing this work coming out. And thanks so much for, for doing this. I mean, it's something that's, I know for the Refugee Bar has been uh, an invaluable resource over the years. Uh, just even just the tables that you produce uh, aside from the work and the insights. Uh, mm -hmm. So anyway, so hopefully we'll be, I'm sure we'll be able to have this discussion again in a, in a few years. And uh, you'll, you'll be able to give us some insight, not only into decision making but uh, you know at that point maybe we can sit down and have a discussion about artificial intelligence and how that's going to play out in, in credibility findings because uh, it looks like that's the direction things are going in other areas of immigration. Although I saw France what was it France has banned the use of AI to try to predict judge behavior. Uh-huh. We'll see. And in our immigration system, it looks like that's a direction they're uh, they're going in. So we'll see how. So we'll see that where that takes us. Yeah. Well, thanks for the conversation. All right, thank you. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.